Hello, and welcome to Multi-Level Mondays, a weekly series all about pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing, and other forms of business fraud. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're gonna be talking about a fascinating case of fraud, the Dale car scam. The Dale was meant to be revolutionary, almost like a Tesla of the 70s. It would have just three wheels, it was low to the ground, lightweight, efficient, with just one catch. Well, it never existed. Well, at least not in the way that everyone thought it would. So how did the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation pull this scheme off? How do they advertise a car that they never built and how on earth did they plan to get away with it? Well, let's jump right into today's episode and find out. To understand this story, we need to talk about the woman behind this company, Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael. Liz was a transgender woman, so while I absolutely don't condone her criminal actions, I wanna make it very clear that some of these articles and sources that I use today are incredibly anti-trans and that it was unfortunately commonplace at the time. Filmmaker Zachary Drucker, who worked on the docuseries about her complicated past, stated in an interview that, quote, I wonder if the reason why I'd never heard of Liz Carmichael is because that image of her was so persistent. The image that Liz Carmichael is Jerry Dean Michael masquerading as a woman to evade law enforcement. I'm not about to pretend that a man has never disguised himself as a woman to commit a crime before, but that's obviously not what being transgender is about. Conflating transgender people with heinous acts is how we get discriminatory bills like the bathroom bills in the first place. So if you hear the name Jerry Dean Michael today, know that it's Liz's dead name. And if I use the name Jerry, it's only because it's a quotation or to summarize what someone else was saying about Liz's life pre-transition. Otherwise, please know that it is incredibly disrespectful to use a transgender person's dead name. If one of my sources say Liz transitioned solely to commit crimes, also know that this is highly controversial and there is a lot of evidence that points to Liz being transgender and not doing it to escape crime. Personally, I believe that this transphobic mindset of Liz being just a male criminal to disguise as a female was simply used as a way to paint Liz in a negative light at the time, as evidenced by old articles that called her a perversion. So while I'll call Liz out for being a criminal, that's the only thing I'm criticizing her for. And if I do use language that's offensive here by mistake while discussing these sources, feel free to correct me because I'm absolutely willing to learn and it's not my intention to upset people. This is kind of a tricky one to navigate, but I still think it's an interesting story nonetheless. Anyway, I felt the need to say that first before digging into Liz's history and what led her to founding this car company in the first place. After all, it is an incredibly messy, complicated tale. It all started in 1937 when Liz was born. She lived in Jasonville, Indiana before eventually moving to Detroit, Michigan. Carmichael described a dirt poor upbringing as a girl on a farm, though classmates remembered her upbringing differently. When folks transitioned in the 60s, they were directed by their doctors to tell positive stories about their lives to make a false backstory, Drucker explains. I was an Indiana farm girl. I grew up tearing down tractor engines while other girls were yada, yada, yada. Being found out could and still can mean a loss of work, housing, or as the murder of trans man Brandon Tina first illuminated for many in the 90s, death. I decided to watch Drucker's documentary to get more information and it's called The Lady and the Dale if you wanna check it out too. Sure enough, there's plenty of conflicting information about how Liz grew up. While Liz herself says she grew up on a dirt farm and just occasionally got to go to the movies, others say that they remember the family as living in a nice brick house, nicer than the other ones in town. 
According to those that knew Liz before she transitioned, they also state that Jerry had something in him that wanted to be important. He wanted to be it. And I think that's what got him into trouble. And got into trouble, Liz absolutely did. Liz married four different times pre-transition and was continually caught up in various schemes. According to Time, Carmichael served in the US Army overseas in Germany and had three brief marriages by the time she met and married Vivian Barnett in 1959. By the early 1960s, the FBI had built up extensive files on her for her part in various cons she implemented throughout her time selling everything from vacuum cleaners to knitting machines, which included counterfeiting schemes embezzling down payments from customers. Candy Michael, one of Liz and Vivian's five children, recalls that growing up, they rarely stayed in the same place longer than two months on account of the fear that Liz would be discovered by authorities. At one point, Carmichael had even been charged with desertion of his wife by the military as well. When Liz met Vivian, though her last wife, things clicked between them. And I'll admit it's a bit odd for me to say that because according to Vivian's mother, Richard, Vivian was only 16 when they met. If this was 1959, then Liz would have been at least 22 at the time. I understand that six years may not be a massive age gap when there's two consenting adults in the picture, but when you have a 16-year-old and a 22-year-old, that's the difference between a high school sophomore or junior and someone graduating college, potentially. Richard also explains that when his sister ran off to get married, quote, I was torn up. My dad was abusive. He was bad. Jerry offered Vivian a way out. I mean, man, she gets to leave and start her own real life. And she did. They complimented each other. Richard adds that back then he admired Liz. He was so cool, Richard said. At the time we did a lot of, I guess you would call illegal things, back when it was so easy to make a fake ID. Suddenly you have a pilot's license. Now you're a graduate of Yale University. He'd gotten that new check writer. He would always tell me it's so much easier to get 75,000 out of somebody than it is to get a $20 bill. The people that think about $20 bills earned it. And some of these people didn't. They wanna give it away and I'm here to take it away. Liz did get arrested, still known at the time as Jerry Dean Michael, but that was for fraud and later for printing fake money. Yet Liz was released on bail and took off running. Vivian and Liz's daughter, Candy, said that she believes her mother was pregnant with her at the time. Her home life naturally was far from normal. She had fake IDs. She said that her parents would write to the Bureau of Vital Statistics to obtain deceased children's birth certificates. Candy claimed that she didn't go to school, so there would be no paper trail, and she never lived in one place for more than two months. We might've had a strange family, but we were a tight-knit family, she explains. My brother, Brian, was a brat, she laughs. Wendy was the quiet one. My sister, Sean, was the princess of the family. And then there's my youngest brother, Michael. He was a handful as a child. Now, I could be incredibly mistaken here, but as far as I can tell, their last name was Michael, so they actually had a son named Michael. So Liz and Vivian named their son Michael Michael. Not gonna lie, I found that noteworthy and hilarious, although I kind of hope I'm wrong, obviously. Liz and Vivian not only constantly uprooted their family, but they were masters at doing so, as described by Candy in the documentary. The police could be knocking on the house next door and we'd be gone before they even got to ours, she says. Liz would even run an exotic pet shop and take some of the pets home so they didn't have to stay the night at the shop. She wanted to raise exotic fish, so she'd pitch to people the idea of paying them to flood their basements for these hatcheries. I swear some of these schemes almost need to be seen to be believed. In one particular scheme, perhaps because the family was tired of running, perhaps because the mob and the FBI were after them or because they wanted to genuinely make a name for themselves, Liz faked her own death. Since she still identified as Jerry Michael at the time, papers were reporting how Jerry had died, that he had been killed and how blood was found on his car. In actuality, Liz had shot her car up and went underground. 
This was the start of something new, a new beginning for the family, and of course, a new scheme. It was around this time that Liz began identifying as, well, Liz. Some sources may imply that this proves Liz was not really trans, that she only began to transition after faking her own death. Personally, I would argue that even if Liz may have been faking her death as an opportunity to start anew, she could have just as easily taken up an identity as a different man if she wasn't trans. I also believe that Liz is transgender based on her own words in a letter she sent to Vivian, and here's what it said. Dear Vivian, I don't know when or how my problem started. Some authorities believe there's a chromosomal imbalance in people. Others say environmental conditioning, while others feel it's glandular misinformation. Whatever the cause, there have been signposts along the way that indicate I was not what I could have been in the sex department, and that's not because I didn't try. I guess I'm not sure that I had some sort of youth screw loose. I'm not a man anymore, at least not in the sexual sense, if I ever was. If I got to know you, I found you to be truly worthy of deep love and the lasting respect and admiration, even with the arguments, the recriminations and the hard words, the love has continued on stronger than ever. As I grow older and hopefully wiser, I come to realize love is pretty important. The passion is gone, but the love goes on. I'd walk through fire for you and the kids. I'd give up my life. Criminal or not, Liz is still human. And I feel that this letter really does show that. It offers us a window into her mind that we don't really get to see a lot in these episodes. And I can appreciate that. I love that they stayed together as a family unit, even if I don't condone the scamming and the fraud, obviously. Although Liz's gender identity is quite honestly, none of our business anyway, the reason why I feel the need to keep insisting that she's trans is because of what happened when the fallout came. And I know we're not quite there yet, and I know I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but I believe this to be an important piece of context, and I wanna continue to reiterate that. Liz did struggle to obtain hormone injections. She had to get them through her connections with veterinarians, through her experience from breeding fish. Liz, as she began to transition in earnest, also began to transition from criminal to career woman. At first, she was a real estate agent, and then alongside a man named Sam Schisselman, she began working at a marketing company called USMI, where she helped new inventors understand what patents and paperwork they needed for their products. Things were looking up, and it really seemed like Liz was going to take advantage of this new start. Of course, that's not to say that it's great she got away with all her previous crimes, but at least she wasn't hurting anyone anymore, right? According to Candy, one day she came home talking about this car, this three-wheeled car, and she showed us pictures of it. I'm looking at it thinking it's a dune buggy. No one's going to drive this thing. But this was going to be the answer to America's gas problem. The oil embargo around this time was absolutely massive and crucial for understanding why people would be drawn to a car such as the Dale, according to the Office of the Historian. During the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, Arab members of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, imposed an embargo against the US in retaliation for the US decision to resupply the Israeli military and to gain leverage in the post-war peace negotiations. Arab OPEC members also extended the embargo to other countries that supported Israel, including the Netherlands, Portugal, and South Africa. The embargo both banned petroleum exports to the targeted nations and introduced cuts in oil production. Several years of negotiations between oil producing nations and oil companies had already destabilized a decades old pricing system, which exacerbated the embargo's effects. The 1973 oil embargo acutely strained a US economy that had grown increasingly dependent on foreign oil. The efforts of President Richard M. Nixon's administration to end the embargo signaled a complex shift in the global financial balance of power to oil producing states and triggered a slew of US attempts to address the foreign policy changes emanating from long-term dependence on foreign oil. 
the Dale car was, in a way, one attempt to address the issue. That's not to say it was a good attempt, but the demand for cars with good gas mileage was in. In an era where cars got eight to 12 miles to the gallon, the Dale would supposedly get 70. The Dale car had been fittingly named after its creator, Dale Clift. Dale had submitted the designs to the USMI, the US Marketing Institute, where Liz worked. A friend of Clift, Richard, stated that, little known is the fact that Dale had built a car in his residential garage. It was built with half inch electrical conduit that was brazed together to form the frame and body. This was the only vehicle Dale was involved with that was a true functioning car that was driven many miles on the street. Both my wife and I took several rides in it. Liz saw a golden opportunity in this car and who can blame her that much, honestly? I would have too. She spoke with Dale, signed some papers with him and after a meeting and in no time at all, they were in business together. It may not have looked like the most practical car nor the most safe car, but during these days, it seemed like a solution for so many Americans desperate to find a way around the oil shortages. This was going to be bigger than Ford, truly revolutionary, or so people believed. When people saw this car, it captured their attention. And of course it would. It's a three-wheeled car in the 70s. As the documentary describes, cars were lower, wider, longer, and heavier than they'd ever been. They were also the least fuel efficient. So this car flying in the face of tradition was unique in just about every way it could be. Candy Michael says that at the time it looked like a spaceship. In order to seem more legitimate, Liz unfortunately began using her new identity to trick others. One source reads, the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation was an automobile company started by entrepreneur Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael in 1974. The company's flagship vehicle was the Dale, a prototype three-wheeled two-seater sports car designed and built by Dale Clift. It was powered by an 850cc air-cooled engine and featured acclaimed 70 miles per gallon, fuel economy, and a $2,000 price, which were popular specifications during the mid-1970s US fuel crisis. Carmichael, 37 in 1974, claimed to be the widow of a NASA structural engineer, a mother of five, and a farm girl from Indiana. There ended up being a lot more false claims and issues with this car aside from who Liz had supposedly been married to. I can, to an extent, understand why Liz would lie about having children and being widowed because trans people were not accepted in the 70s. Not that there's no transphobia to this day, but it was even more prevalent years ago. As a result of this, Vivian became Aunt Vivian and she and Liz pretended to be sisters. However, regardless of Liz's lies about her personal life, it's these early lies she told to gain credibility is where I start to take issue with her business tactics, shall we say. This of course was only the beginning. One important person that makes an appearance in the documentary is John Griffiths. He is an engineer who was hired directly by Liz to build the first ever prototype of the Dale car. All they had until John were show cars made to get people talking and interested, but not true running working automobiles. Sam was in charge of PR for this budding company and he contacted people such as Colin Dangard, a reporter, insisting he spread the news. Though Liz wasn't famous yet, Sam told people that she was going to be. She was the face of the company, a mother of five with a supposed dead husband from NASA. When I was interviewing her, I became more and more enthralled. Elizabeth Carmichael was an original thinker, Colin, the reporter stated. Everything grew incredibly quickly. Soon, the Dale car and Liz made the front page of major newspapers. The car was featured on The Price is Right and Liz was convincing people that she would become the largest car manufacturer in just five years. The way she comes across in these interviews is supremely confident. I can see why she would make such a fantastic saleswoman and a fantastic con artist too. 
She claimed that the plastic on her cars were nine times stronger than steel, ounce for ounce. She said that she had driven the car into a wall at 30, 40, even 50 miles per hour and came out with no more than a scratch. The body of the car was made of rocket structural resin, hell, that she even ran into in the ocean. It all sounded too good to be true, and it was. Yet people were desperate to believe in this car during these very desperate times. On the inside, however, it was an incredibly different story. John Griffiths said he realized they didn't have even the proper equipment to make a car, no schedule to complete anything, nothing at all. John wrote a formal letter telling Liz he wanted to become the director, that he could do what he needed to get done, yet Liz simply told him that they already had a project director, Frank McGinnis. We were those dirty little buggers that were building this thing in the back room while she was making the big money on a dream, John says. Some in the documentary say that Liz was simply carving out an opportunity herself because no one was going to give a woman in the 70s a chance at building a car company. Others, like John, imply that she was vastly underprepared and the car shop was embarrassing. Personally, I feel the truth is somewhere in the middle. I do genuinely believe that Liz wanted to strike it big and make a fantastic empire, but I agree with John that she may not have known how. She may have wanted others to believe in her, to fund her dream, but making unfounded claims isn't the way to go about it. And of course, if this were all about just false claims, then we may not have much to talk about. But before we continue on, let's take a quick moment to hear from today's sponsors. Sometimes cooking is just a little bit difficult. I know that's something that I personally struggle with a little more than I'd like to admit. And that's why, as many of you know, I have been using HelloFresh for, uh, is it like almost a year at this point? I feel like it's been almost a year at this point, but I've been using HelloFresh for a long time now, and it has been helping my cooking game in the kitchen so much. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so that you can enjoy cooking and dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or less. And there's just about something for everyone to enjoy with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. And HelloFresh's high quality fresh ingredients are sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm to your front door in under a week, contact free of course. And HelloFresh offers the flexibility you need to customize your order within the app in just a couple like simple minutes. It's so easy. I love the app. It gives me like six weeks in advance, I think of recipes. So you can literally just pre-plan everything out like a month in advance. And oh my God, I love planning. So this makes it a little too easy. So if you wanna get started today on your own food journey, make sure to go to hellofresh.com MLM14 and use code MLM14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to hellofresh.com slash MLM14, use code MLM14 for 14 free meals plus free shipping. People had grown suspicious of Liz, especially one reporter from KABC, Dick Carlson. If you know Tucker Carlson from Fox News, this is his father and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. So Dick and Pete Noyes, a fellow investigative reporter, went to the Dale Car Company to interview Liz. The pair claimed that while they were waiting for the interview, there was a representative from the district attorney's office. Although he wouldn't give them any information, he said that they should keep an eye on the place as there were some suspicious people lurking about the 20th century car company. As an important note here, Liz herself had even hired bodyguards the more money became involved, Bill Miller and Jack Oliver. Dick Carlson during this interview asked Liz if the dome of the car could be removed so they could take a look inside. Though she refused, she allowed them into the research and development lab. 
Dick and Pete came prepared though. Even though they don't know anything about automotive engineering, they hired one as a shadow member of the crew, having him pretend to be a lighting guy. After the interview with Liz was over, they asked the man what he thought, and he told Dick that it didn't look like the components they saw in the R&D lab were made in that building. Liz wouldn't give any information, even as the news about this began to spread, and the Dale Carr salesman continued to take deposits from people that were promised that they would just pay $1,900 and they'd receive one of the first cars off the assembly line. When someone is selling a concept car like this, legally, you're bound to use that money for their deposits only. That money can't be used on the development of the car, nor to pay the employees, nor can you stick it in your own pocket. Yet Liz, while she happily took their money, wasn't putting it into any sort of escrow account. Dick even went to the state corporation's commission about this, but he claimed that they did nothing until it was public information and they were forced to act. According to one source, Carmichael at one point claimed she had $30 million from investors backing her, but unorthodox business practices at 20th Century began to attract the attention of the California Department of Corporations and the California Department of Motor Vehicles, which soon ordered her to cease operations because 20th Century had neither a license to sell shares nor a license to sell cars and dealerships. Liz seemed to be in denial about the whole thing. She claimed the state was harassing the company, that false reports were turned into regulatory bodies and largely acted as as if the whole world were against her and the company. Not that this attitude exactly worked wonders for her. It didn't take all that much investigative research for Dick to learn that they were still taking deposits despite the cease and desist from the state either. All he had to do was ask a cameraman to go inside and pretend to be interested. And sure enough, 20th Century Cars allowed him to purchase an option or put a down payment on one of their Dale cars. So much for leaving behind her criminal past. By this point, Dick wasn't letting up. After his cameraman was able to put down a deposit, Dick began to dig even deeper into Liz's past. He learned that the engineering school she claimed to graduate from had no record of her attending. Hell, he couldn't even figure out who Elizabeth Carmichael was in the first place because after all, she didn't exist on paper or in the public eye until creating the 20th Century Car Company. Liz desperately needed people to believe in her again and to invest in her again. Her public image had been thrown into question and now everything was riding on a few Japanese inventors to bring money into the company to continue production, but it didn't work out that way. One source claims that in 1974, A group of potential investors wanted to see the car in action. Carmichael's crash-crunched crew had to cobble together a running version. It had a BMW motorcycle engine, mechanic Hans Hansen, who worked at 20th Century Molders, told The Post. And if you took a sharp turn, part of the front went up in the air. After seeing the dangerous looking vehicle up close, the would-be investors backed out. Carmichael referred to the display as, quote, an abortion on three wheels, end quote. John Griffiths, who drove the test run, said that he remembered nearly flying out of the car while his friend, who was heavyset, was practically dragged along the ground. Of course, there were those that said the test driver was there to disprove it, but some blamed John for sabotaging the company. But frankly, I think John is probably the hero of this story, if you think about it. If John hadn't made that sharp turn, but simply allowed the car to appear safe, then it may have still appeared investable. It could have gone into production. And then the people that put those deposits down would receive these cars and would be driving these incredibly dangerous vehicles. Don't get me wrong, I know it's only a prototype and I'd certainly like to believe more safety testing would be done to it before it would be released, but this seemed like an inherent design flaw. Whether you call it sabotage or simply revealing why the Dale wasn't ready for production is up to you, but I lean towards the latter camp. Things, however, were bad enough. Their company had been served with a cease and desist. The investors weren't about to pour money into an unsafe car. Yet again, though, things were about to get much worse. 
The headquarters was in process of being moved to Dallas to avoid California regulation when it happened. In January, 1975, the bodyguards Miller and Oliver got into an argument and Oliver shot Miller on the showroom floor. Very quickly, law enforcement began to not only investigate the murder, but everyone else in the company, including Liz herself. One source claims the company shut off their phones, locked up the office and fled just as the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office issued an arrest warrant for Carmichael, who had bottled off to a Dallas suburb where she had reestablished operations. This time hawking another new as tomorrow three-wheeler, the Revel, as well as a station wagon variant, the Vanagon. In an extraordinary display of chutzpah, Liz actually managed to get the Revel, presumably a non-running prototype, showcased as a grand prize on the price is right. No contestant won it, which was just as well, but someone winning it would have created a very awkward and very interesting scenario. Assistant District Attorney Jerry Banks, who was in Texas at the time, explained that these cars were just toy kit cars at the best. If Liz wasn't there convincing you that it was a miracle car, then it was obviously a house of cards. Another source writes, soon after she and nine other 20th century employees were indicted on charges of fraud. It turned out the Dale was nothing more than a fiberglass body with a generator engine that couldn't adequately drive down the block. Investigators discovered that Carmichael, along with several of 20th century's employees were formerly employed by United States Marketing Institute, a company that promotes inventions. Though the arrest warrant went out, Liz and her family were gone. They were back at it again, running from the law. However, police weren't letting go of this case so easily. So they went to talk to Richard, Liz's brother-in-law and former partner in crime. Richard says that he cooperated and it was at this point that he explained who Liz used to be, Jerry Dean Michael. Unfortunately, one of the people who was quite thrilled to learn about this development was Dick, the reporter. Now, let me put again this little qualifier here. If Dick Carlson had gotten on the news and said that Liz, before she transitioned, was known as Jerry Dean Michael, a criminal wanted by the FBI, I would have had less of a problem with that. It's a statement of fact. Liz was a criminal and she deserved to be exposed for that like anyone else. However, the way in which Dick and the media ran with this is pretty disgusting to say the least. He said on air that, and I quote, Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael in reality is a 47 year old guy by the name of Jerry Dean Michael, end quote. Liz Carmichael in actuality is a transgender woman that committed crimes pre and post transition. Regardless, the law and the media were doggedly pursuing her. According to Candy, police even came into their home, guns drawn on the children in an attempt to find her. Liz ran out of the house just moments before they arrived, just wearing her bodysuit. Only this time she didn't stay missing. Candy recalls that Liz returned to say goodbye to her children and that's when they caught her. Liz, after well over a decade of running, was arrested. It's awful what Liz did, scamming and lying to people. And yes, I do think she belonged in prison by this point. However, the way Liz was treated is also very upsetting. After being locked in the men's prison, Liz was interrogated. She said she'd only earned $3 million, not the 10 they claimed, and none of it was missing. She had spent some money to start the process of receiving bottom surgery though, and she told detectives that she had already had her testicles removed. According to Susan Stryker, a transgender historian and expert on the subject, back in the 70s, many doctors in the US would make an argument against transgender surgery, stating that it was sterilizing a person. Therefore, there were those like Liz who would go to Mexico to have her testicles removed so that that way, upon returning to the US, she could potentially find a doctor that would complete the surgery. It was so common, in fact, that the slang term for it was the Tijuana two-step. Again, while normally I would say that Liz's gender identity and medical history has absolutely no bearing on her actions, and it's frankly none of our business, 
what's so enraging is that the media made it the public's business. Dick Carlson, even to this day, maintains his belief that her trans identity was a malevolent ruse. Dick even commented on Liz's looks, saying she looked like a man and his partner, Pete, if that's what we refer to it as a male and we're wrong, will look bad. And yes, using the term it. Now, this is just my personal opinions here, but I think that Dick's name is rather fitting after how he outed Liz publicly and nationally. And he actually has a habit of doing this and even did it to a tennis player, Renee, around the same time. At this point, we may as well call him a professional transphobe, and it looks like he passed that lovely trait on down to his son. Condemn someone for their crimes all you want, but not for their gender. And all of this was done to create a ton of misgendering phrases like a man pretending to be a woman being used and Dick even speculating about the children's well-being when it was, again, none of his business. People in those days would say that because Liz's bottom surgery had not been completed, that she was still a man. I'm sure misinformed people still believe that, but the point is that Liz's trial was turned into an absolute media circus. It seems like just about every interview shown in the documentary had reporters focusing on that, not whether or not Liz was guilty of any crime whatsoever. Unsurprisingly, but frustratingly, Liz was sent to a male prison where she was attacked. She had been beaten incredibly severely. Susan says that here in the US, we say that we don't believe in cruel and unusual punishment, yet putting a transgender woman in a male prison is exactly that. Liz had to petition the court for the right to be addressed as a woman at her own trial, which thankfully was actually granted. And finally, it was official. The trial of Elizabeth Carmichael, not Jerry Michael, had begun. Liz's evidence was, to an extent, compelling. She claimed that even if she were actually a criminal, she simply could have run off with the millions that were given to her rather than use them to operate the company. Then again, as we stated earlier, that's not how deposits work. If you spend a deposit on a car that doesn't exist yet and the company goes bust as Liz has had, then you're left with customers who are not only never going to get a car, but they're never going to get their money back either. So I would argue that yes, what she did was illegal. Not to mention all of the scams she pulled before faking her death in 1961. However, I will say that honestly, I do believe Liz intended to make the car. Sheer force of will and good intentions aren't good enough, but as far as the Dale car and the 20th century car company is concerned, she doesn't come across as malicious. Criminal, yes, but I don't believe I would say malicious. Outside of the courtroom, however, things got even more interesting. See, during the trial, Liz chose to represent herself. Normally hearing that would make me roll my eyes because it's rarely a smart move. In this case, it was genius. Inflammatory stories came out about Liz, like one man who claimed that he was hired to kill several journalists, one being Dick, for $10,000 each. However, the moment this man learned that he could be cross-examined and questioned by Liz, she, as the defense attorney, he pled the fifth and said nothing. That story never truly went anywhere, much to Dick's chagrin, who continues to address Liz by male pronouns in court, even when the judge continued to correct him. Not that the jurors were much better. One juror is quoted as saying about Liz that, I wish she would sit down because I was tired of seeing the bulge in her pants. Another said that one day she was in the bathroom in the stall next to me, and I thought I was going to see which way her feet go. Her feet went the same way as mine, so I figured she was transsexual. Yes, because the direction you pee definitively determines your gender now, apparently. There was only one juror, Mary Thayer, that said she believed Liz was not guilty. However, when Mary was sick and taken to the hospital for a short time, the final count happened without her. She claimed she was taken off the case despite her wish to remain on it, and without her there, Liz was found guilty. This was suspicious to say the very least, more than suspicious really. Mary wasn't as sick as the judge believed, and the doctor's note that was given to the judge wasn't even written by a doctor, 
but that it may have been altered by the bailiff. In my opinion, this should have led to a mistrial. This can't even be seen as acceptable and this should have brought deliberation to a grinding halt and been investigated. Instead, as far as the documentary presents, Mary was simply replaced and four days later, Liz and the other executives at her company were found guilty on 137 out of 155 charges. Was Liz guilty of some of them? Absolutely, I think so. But did she get a fair trial? Absolutely not. And was this the end of Liz? Also no. Before final sentencing, Liz ran off again. And I've got some incredibly mixed feelings at this point, really. Because on one hand, yes, I think she should pay for selling these cars without a license to do so. But can I blame her for not wanting to be mistreated in prison again? Well, no. After that ordeal, I wouldn't wanna deal with the justice system either, frankly. And this time truly, when Liz skipped town, she began running, by all accounts, credible business. She opened up a flower shop employing homeless people to sell flowers. She'd purchase the flowers wholesale and then make bouquets. It was a family business, children and her all working together. Even though Liz and Vivian divorced, they kept in touch. Vivian did remarry only to pass away quickly from cancer, but she and Liz remained close till the very end. Honestly, I think a part of me wants this to be where the story ends. Another part of me thinks that Liz needs to pay for her crimes and maybe I've gone a bit soft, but after the beating and humiliation and cruelty Liz endured, I would sort of like to imagine her just living out her final days selling flowers. However, in 1989, when an Unsolved Mysteries episode about Liz aired, a caller recognized her as the flower vendor near Austin, Texas. Liz was done fighting, done running. They picked her up and extradited her back to California to face conviction. Yet, despite her petition to the court to be addressed as a woman, despite clearly identifying as such, and despite already having been attacked, Liz was still sent to a men's facility. After 18 months though, Liz was released. I don't know why she wasn't given more time exactly, but I guess I'm weirdly glad about it. She shouldn't have been in a men's prison to begin with, but at least she served her time. I don't know, have I gone soft? I don't know. Anyway, once Liz returned, the business was back on track. She and her sellers and her family restarted the family flower business once again. She recruited anyone that needed a job and a place to live. She didn't judge anyone and the sellers spoke incredibly highly of her. Unfortunately, In true Liz fashion, she wasn't doing things by the book still. Her vendors didn't have licenses. I swear, I feel like throughout her entire life, if Liz had only had someone telling her to get a license and making her do paperwork, maybe none of this would have ever happened. Maybe her exotic pet shop could have taken off or the Dale car, if not a car, could have been treated like a go-kart or something. She had a beautiful flower business that genuinely was helping people. She just didn't do the damn paperwork and pay the taxes. I get that Liz wanted the government to stay out of her business from the very beginning, But if she'd only done things more by the book, even if she hated the regulation, she might've had the successful business she always wanted. Normally, I feel that the scam artists that I feature in these episodes often have what's coming to them, and perhaps they deserve even more punishment and justice than what they actually face. But in this case, I believe that you can want to see justice done without wanting to see someone treated as inhuman or mocked or judged. True justice was never really given in the case of Liz Carmichael, in my opinion, but mistreatment around every corner. I'll admit though, that's just my personal opinion. I have my biases and I would absolutely love to hear your opinions on what you think of the entire story of the Dale car scam and Liz Carmichael. But as for now, that ends today's episode of Multi-Level Mondays. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And with that being said, that is where I'm ending today's episode of Multi-Level Mondays. Love you all and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. I don't mean-